Thank you, Marilyn. Well, sometimes when I hear the sermon text read aloud in front of you all, it, it doesn't surprise me. It's not the first time I've heard it this week, but sometimes it does just strike me the gravity having it heard uh, read aloud. I hope that you feel the same as well. Charles Spurgeon once said, there is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more that we can feel it, the happier we will be. There is no joy in the world like union with Christ. The more that we can feel it, the happier we will be. I don't know about you personally, but I think that most Christians have less than biblical understanding or familiarity with the doctrine, the teaching of the Christian's unity with Christ. That's what today's sermon is about, united with Christ. This idea, this understanding of salvation, which has been said by many authors who for time's sake have left out this morning, to be the most central way in which we understand salvation. I guess that's not true. I'll explain a few of those in a moment. I want to ask you to pray with me now that the Lord God would help us through His Word to understand what it means to be a Christian and to appreciate it all the more or maybe for the first time to realize I haven't been a Christian. I need to be Or if you're here today and you're not professing to be a Christian, you would have a very high view of what it is to actually be a Christian according to God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us today. This is your Word. We trust that you work in it by your Spirit. And we trust that you make known our own hearts and motives by it. So we pray that we would know ourselves well and better because of your word. We pray that we would know you better. We pray that we would know our salvation more clearly, that we might have an increased joy because of it and even a greater obedience out of love for you. We love you, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, to begin talking about this idea of our unity with Christ, I first want to say a few words that I think are necessary about mystery. First thing is that we cannot do away with all mystery. And this is especially true when it comes to understanding what our unity with Christ means. One author said explaining a mystery is like explaining a joke. When you do it, you kill it. So there's a tension that's necessary. Another says, trying to explain mysteries, these are two authors about unity in Christ, trying to explain mysteries is counterintuitive. If we succeed in the task, we risk losing the mystery. If we retain the the mystery, we risk losing the explanation. So we're kind of trying to understand union with Christ, understanding that there's going to be some mystery, but we're also trying to understand it. And there is 
an impossibility that I feel and I think is biblical to explain it in a way that removes all mystery. One of the ways that Paul talks about this union of the Christian to Christ is this, I was crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. How is that possible? What does that even mean that Christ, a man that died 2,000 years ago, now lives in me? Again, as Marilyn read for us, Paul says, we Christians were buried with him by baptism into death. Let me just say that unless you've read this phrase and studied this this week, it's very low likelihood you talked like this this week. We were buried. How are you doing? I mean, I've been pretty good. I was buried with Christ. So, you know, just, we don't say that. We simply have to leave room for some mystery along the way when it comes to our understanding. This is not an excuse to try to be vague on my part, but to understand that Scripture is doing this itself, it seems. Now, the second thing I want to say about mystery is that it doesn't mean that we can't know things, that we shouldn't try to know things. The glory of anything mysterious, quote in Scripture, is not that we know nothing about it. On the contrary, look what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. You can flip there quickly. We'll be in Colossians 2. I'll just go ahead and tell you, we're going to be in Romans 6 a lot, Colossians chapter 2, and Galatians chapter 2 a lot today. So we'll be flipping back and forth between those three. I would say those are the three main passages that speak about our unity with Christ, although we'll hear in a moment there are many, many more. Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul is struggling for the sake of the church that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, too, so that Christians will reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, in other words, I am sure that I understand, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So Paul wants there to be an understanding and a knowledge, a knowing of the mystery which is Christ. The Bible does not champion willful ignorance about either God or Christ or the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to ever think that you have achieved some higher plane of faith or tolerance or kindness because you choose to have faith on less knowledge about Christ. That's foolish. You're not better for piddling around with kind of fortune cookie level Bible verses when there are bottomless treasures of wisdom and knowledge to be found in Christ, which is the next passage in Colossians 2. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Him. Paul does not suggest that our union with Christ or any facet of the gospel of Jesus Christ is supposed to kind of remain a dark, unknown mystery to us. Rather, Paul spent most of his ink writing letters in order to explain and expound the meaning of the gospel so that we can know Christ. And today we'll see most especially our union with Christ. Rankin Wilburn notes in all his letters, the Apostle Paul never once, 
want you to just grasp this with me for a minute. Never once uses the word Christian. Rather, his most common phrase for those who follow Christ is that they are, quote, in Christ. Think about it. Paul doesn't so much talk about Christians, which is actually a derogatory name given by a non-Christian to Christians. Paul speaks in terms of Christians being in him, those who are in him. When Paul talks about Christians, most often he talks about Christians' relation to Christ, those who are in him. He uses the phrase, Wilburn continues, in Christ or closely related phrases over 160 times. It's in the first half of Ephesians 1 alone 11 times where Paul is explaining what it means to be a Christian in Christ. I wonder if you would ask yourself or ask any Christian what the phrase in Christ means, how many of us out of 10 could give an answer as to the nature of our union with Christ. And let me just say, you don't need to go home feeling guilty about that. It's probably the church's fault, right? I've been here for 10 years. If you're like, I know nothing, you can just look at me and say, what have you been preaching? What have we been talking about? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And then Paul asks this rhetorical question, Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. In the first half of nearly all Paul's letters, Paul is teaching Christians what it means to be a Christian. He's differentiating from true and false faith. He is expounding on the simple faith in Christ to understand the totality of what it means to be a Christian. Don't you realize Paul, in essence, is saying over and over that Jesus Christ is in you. In you. Now, to begin to understand the nature of our, our union with Christ and what it means, first we need to understand that we, none of us, were ever really alone. We all begin, as it were, with a unity to Adam, the first man. In salvation, we do not go from being alone to united with Christ. Rather, being unified with Christ is the salvation answer to our being unified with Adam. From birth, we do not morally or by nature stand alone. None of us are solo, so to speak. Rather, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, many died through one man's trespass. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says it like this, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all may be made alive. We live in kind of a you-be-you you culture. I, I grew up with my grandmother telling me, you can be whatever you want to be. And there are some truth in those ideals. 
You ought to be able to be yourself without being bullied or made fun of or harmed in sense. You can be your own personality. You can aspire to do whatever job you'd like to do. No one wants to be president anymore, but when I grew up, that's what everyone said they wanted to be. We like to say that we are each our own, but in reality, Adam and Eve plunged us all into sin, and we have, as it were, a unity with them. We have that phrase like, in Christ, we have in Adam. In Adam, Paul says, all die. As long as we're left to being the great, 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 great grandchildren of Adam, we have sin in our hearts and our veins, and death is the result for us all. Recall from last week, we were born into sin. Our hearts are deceitful. Our will is corrupted. Our nature is sinful. We do not just commit sins. Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, sin dwells in us. You see the difference? Our problem is not just we're alone in the world and we're autonomous and we're good and we're free in ourselves and and we just happen to stumble and commit some sins. The problem is way deeper, that sin dwells in us. We don't just break the law as we saw last week. David prayed, I was conceived in sin. Born in it. Because of this, we get what we deserve. What God promised Adam and Eve would be the result of their sin. That if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. This is why death exists in humanity. It's not just random. It's not just strange. It's not just because we haven't figured out how to apply the right essential oils yet. It's because of sin. If you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, if you disobey God, you will experience good and evil and you will surely die. And so mankind was corrupted from Adam's death forward. Every person from Adam forward continues to die because we continue united with him in sin, by nature, by progeny, by heritage, and in every way. Our great problem is not that we are alone without Christ, but that we are attached to sin. That we are attached to Adam, corrupted by nature, under Adam's headship, destined for wrath, children of wrath, Paul says in Ephesians 2. And we deserve every ounce. Our only hope is that we would be cleansed, detached, separated from Adam, as it were, and attached instead to Christ. That we would no longer have sin in dwelling and overpowering and controlling us, that we would be freed from what Paul refers to as being enslaved to sin. This is what our unity with Christ means first. Apart from sin in line for God's judgment, united with Christ for forgiveness and with heaven. What does it mean to be united with Christ? To be united with Christ is more than vicarious representation. 
more than vicarious representation. It is spiritual unity. Just to make sure we understand vicarious, I've said this often over the years, the first couple of years that I was pastor at Millwood Baptist, you might not have known this, but I was way too young and inexperienced to be your pastor. So I was going to another brother here in town and talking with him month to month and telling him what you all were doing, asking for help, how to figure it out. And uh, he would give me counsel, and he would give me guidance. And I've told people many times for years, this dear brother vicariously pastored our church, right? I said a lot of smart things, said a lot of dumb things, all the good things I can attribute to getting help. Does it make sense? So he was kind of doing it from over there. And often, I think, when we think about Christ and the sacrifice on the cross, we think about it in terms of vicarious representation, Right? And we talk about it, and it's, and it's not wrong to talk like that. It's biblical that Jesus died on the cross over there, back there in time, and he kind of represents me before God so that I can go here and do my thing, and I've got a represent, representative over there before God and up in heaven before God making sure I don't get in trouble, a kind of vicarious representative. He's standing out there and over there for me. But unity with Christ and the essence of salvation is more than that Jesus did a thing for you and stands in your place for you. But that by faith and the work of the Spirit, we are united with Christ. We are united, attached, connected, bonded with Him. This is what I'll call a mystical union, a mystical union, a word that I use without embarrassment about Christianity. John Murray referred to our union with Christ as mysticism on the highest level. John Calvin referred to our salvation as that mystical union. Mysticism, as we would probably know at first, would be by definition the belief that union with or absorption into a deity or the deity or the spiritual apprehension of knowledge that's inaccessible to the intellect can be attained through contemplation and self-surrender. At least that's Wikipedia's version of mysticism. We can just kind of connect and get absorbed into, become one with, the spiritual God that is out there. And we can do this through meditation. We can smoke some stuff and get there. There's all kinds of ways, all kinds of mystical ways to have a mystical union in that sense. Now, the Bible rejects mysticism as such. You don't become one with God in the sense that you become God or part of God or a God. But I think that you'll see as the Bible describes our relationship to Christ, it speaks in what we would call fairly in our language today, mystical. You can refer back to a sermon here preached in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 6 to see that fledged out in more details. But we need to maintain in Christianity and our understanding of salvation a mystical sense of what happens 
because that's how the Bible speaks about what a Christian is. But Christians, we're, we're taught not to join in mystical things. We're supposed to avoid seances where we have meetings with the dead people. That shouldn't be on your calendar for this week. We know better than to engage in spiritual crystals and voodoo dolls and peyote rituals. For that matter, today, many alien abduction tales are described in disturbingly spiritual terms. We have to be careful, though, that by avoiding dark spiritual engagement, we don't despiritualize salvation or Christ himself. More so, when we start talking about mystical things in the West, it often starts to sound like imagination or kind of hocus-pocus, the, the unreal, not real fairy tale realm where it's not real stuff, you just have an experience. You just took too many drugs today. Our postmodern scientific culture doesn't think mystically. We don't entertain, we don't like, we're not comfortable with things that are mysterious. We used to be more so. Rankin Wilburn suggests that we often miss the teaching of our unity with Christ because we like clear expectations, we live in a disenchanted and self-centered world, and we live in a soundbite culture of simplistic answers while the concepts and the glory of our union with Christ won't fit in any of those terms. But Wilburn adds, union with Christ doesn't narrow your world. It opens the door to a world larger and more exciting, more mysterious and more dangerous than you ever imagined. But in order to live in it, your imagination must be captured by a new story so that you too can keep pressing onward and upward toward life in this new world, even today as you walk with both feet on the ground. We walk in reality. We are actually sitting here today. You're actually here. If I'm looking at you, you're here. Your rear is in this chair. Your feet are on this ground. Some of you are back there checking, I see. I just, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure. But Wilburn's helping us see that our union with Christ exposes us to a reality and an experience beyond our seeing, our touching, that is spiritual and that is both ways and direction eternal. There's something wonderful, something incomprehensible that cannot be conceived but without imagination and faith. So then it will be something not that only we capture and we understand, but something that captures us and puts us in a state of humility, puts us in a state of awe, something that is real and experienced by faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's think now, how does the Bible describe our union with Christ? For those of us who want the most simple answer that I think I can give today, I might think of a better one at like two o'clock today. The best answer I can give right now, how does the Bible describe our union with Christ? 
It's participation in the life of Christ by the Spirit of God. Our union with Christ is our participation in the life of Christ by the Spirit of God. So listen to the host of ways the Bible, this is by no means exhaustive, listen to the ways the Bible describes our union with Christ. Buried with him. Baptized into his death. United with him in a death like his. Another passage, having been buried with him in baptism. Another passage, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Or Jesus Christ is in you. Or your life is hidden in him. Christ dwells in you. Christ lives in you. And we find this phrase, in him, over and over and over and over in the New Testament. How are all of these participatory unions achieved? What connects us to Christ? Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14. John 14, and look at verses 15 through 20. If you're in your house, Bibles puts you on page 901. This is that pass, that span of passage where Jesus is telling his disciples he's going to be going away and what that's going to mean for them. And it worries the disciples to think about Christ leaving them. John 14, verse 15 through 20. Look at what Jesus says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, which is probably capitalized in your Bibles. The first clue that the helper is someone. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells in you, with you, and will be in you. The Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In short, how are we connected? How do we unite, remain with Christ? 
by the Holy Spirit, a spiritual connection primarily. I do not want to leave out the physical nature, but we only have time for so many things. The Spirit, Sinclair Ferguson says, is the equivalent, indeed the very mode, of having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ indwelling us so that we are united to Him as He is to the Father. That's what Jesus was getting at in John chapter 14, verse 20. You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Why would he reference his unity to his, his, his inness in his Father? To explain what kind of relationship we are going to have with him. I'm in my Father, you are in me, and I will be in you. So the nature is, I think the best word for this morning at least, is participation. We're, we're with him, participating in his Life, And we understand the kind of union where two things are stuck together. Maybe you've accidentally superglued your fingers together before and you pulled some skin off. Or you taped some paper together and when you tried to pull that apart, it pulled one of the pieces of paper in two. We understand how things get stuck together. But there's a deeper, more intrinsic kind of unity when Jesus says, I'm in you and you'll be in me. It's a participation. And what I want us to see this morning, what I think Paul shows and the Bible shows is that it's participation in his whole life. Participation in his whole life. Before children and before marriage, I went skydiving two times. For those who are wondering, there is a point zero 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 two percent chance of dying when skydiving. Nonetheless, I've decided not to take that chance because I like being married. So I just stay on all the planes that I board now. Both times I went skydiving, I did what's called a tandem jump, meaning I did not jump out of the plane alone. I did it together with someone who'd been trained, someone who was certified in such things, someone who knew what they were going to do. And as the plane began to reach jumping altitude, the instructor scooted over awkwardly close to me from behind I was in the front, he was behind me. Before we opened the door in the plane, he connected us together with four harnesses, two at the shoulders and two at the hips. Then he tightened the harnesses so that what was already awkward was now strange. What kind of harness connected me to the professional skydiver. I don't know. I don't know. That was the last thing that I was thinking about on those two days. I probably should have thought more about that as I look back. I, it could have been Velcro. I don't know. Carbon fiber, steel, a hundred pound test, fishing line. I, I don't know. 
I just know that he said we're connected. And I know that everything that happened to him happened to me. I'm alive today because I was participating in everything he did. The Spirit of God is what connects us to Christ. It's not just imaginary. It's not just theoretical. It's not just representation connection to Christ. When I jumped out of that plane, we did not do it separately. He jumped out, and then I jumped out, and I got down. We said, hey, yeah, we both jumped out of the plane together. No, we were connected. One parachute for two people. I was connected to him. He did all the saving. He alone had the saving device. So the Spirit of God connects us to Christ about every spiritual and physical matter. Our union with Christ includes our physical unity to Him through His incarnation as a man. But consider what Paul says. Based on our unity with Christ by the Spirit, I have been crucified with Christ. We were buried with Him. Our old self was crucified in Him. In Him, you were circumcised, Paul says, speaking about the work God does in your heart with a circumcision made without hands, that is, that is spiritual. In Christ, you, without Christ, you were dead. In Christ, you were made alive. All of the in hymns, all of the baptized into him, all of the died with hymns, they mean that something happens to us. And it is happening to us. And it's going to happen to us because we are personally, really participating in Christ's life. This is the experience of the Christian. We are not simply a belief religion, as it were. Let me explain it this way. I've thought about this and I'm willing to say it. Belief saves no one. Belief doesn't save anyone. We're not going to take the time, but you can go to James chapter 2 and see faith. There's some faith that doesn't save There's some belief, there's some intellectual ascension. The demons knew who Jesus was before anybody else did in Mark. Belief alone doesn't just save us. If we believe things but never die and we never rise, what has been changed? Nothing. Unity with Christ means something happens to us. Jumping out of the plane in a tandem jump means everything the instructor did, I did. Everything that happened to him happened to me. When he leaned forward to look out the plane from 12,000 feet, so did I. When he shoved out the door and plummeted toward the earth, so did I. When he did flip after flip, so did I. When he spun with his hands and redirected, I spun and redirected. 
When he pulled his parachute, my parachute came out. The impact of the parachute jolted us both. The parachute carried us both down from about 5,000 feet. Our feet touched the ground at the very same time. So the Spirit unites us to Christ, that all along the way we are united with Christ by the Spirit. Where Christ goes, we go. The way we are saved is by tandem jump, so to speak, not just by a representative over there going to turn in a report for us. That would never do because our problem is this ancient unity with Adam and with sin. We need to be connected in Christ. When we put together what Paul has taught in the letters in the New Testament, we see that our unity with Christ is all the way from the jump to the ground, or rather in salvation, all the way from the grave to the throne. We are unified with Christ in the crucifixion. You see this in Galatians and Romans and Colossians. Crucified with Christ means that by the Spirit uniting me to Christ, I died at the cross when and where Christ died at the cross. That is to say, by being united to Christ, the old me, who who I used to be before my unity with Christ, that old me died. It's not there anymore. It's dead. It doesn't breathe anymore. It doesn't exist anymore. That's getting at the heart of what we call conversion, what we call salvation. The old me passes away. Something new now exists. It's not saying I, I simply do by myself. It's not a spiritual death. I kind of die on my own. It's a death to me, a passing on of the old me, which happens by union with Christ through the Holy Spirit. I went away. Something else rose up. We too were buried with Christ. Paul says in Colossians 2.12, we were buried with him in baptism, meaning spiritually we were baptized into the grave with Christ. We all deserve the grave. We all deserve death because of our sin. Christ went to the grave for us. But he didn't just go to the grave for us over there. He took us with him so that we might die. Our old selves would go away. One author notes, Paul actually invented new words to describe this new reality. The phrases crucified with, raised with, buried with, seated with, are each a single word in Greek, beginning with the prefix sin, S-Y-N, meaning with. Those words didn't exist before Paul coined them. Something so unique has happened that there were no words for Paul to describe it. So he says, we were buried with sin baptismo. We were baptized with him, into him. Crucified with him, buried with him, raised with him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 5 says, But God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. But he didn't just make us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. 
Paul says it like this in Colossians 2, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That means that we're participants in his resurrection, his victory. When a soccer game goes into sudden death, and there's like a, a goal shootout. I don't even know what you call this. I See, I don't know soccer, but we're going to go with this illustration. You can tell me later if it's totally botched. Let's call it a shootout. You've got one person representing the entire team kicking goals at the goalie, trying to score last goals. If your guy kicks the ball into the goal, no one walks off the field to your teammate going... You won. You, you won. You scored the goal. You won. That's not how unity works. That's not how team works. What do we say? We win. Really? Because he kicked the goal. Yeah, we're on a team. We win. We celebrate. We enjoy the victory. We go to the after party together. We ride in the parade together. What? He kicked the goal. We still go to the parade because we win. Now, the illustration falls apart a little bit because we contribute nothing to this game. Jesus is the only one who gives all life everything that we need but we live and we can celebrate and we can enjoy Jesus' victory as our own. And we live with him. We were crucified with him. We were buried with him. We have been raised with him, past tense. We now can live with him. Romans 6 says we were raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. To live different lives now. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. The death that he died, he died to sin. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 2. Because I'm united with Christ's death, death, because I'm buried with him and now raised with him. Paul says this. Listen, this is incredible. It's no longer I who live. It's not me, it's living. I, I, it's not me. I died in the grave, but now it's Christ who lives in me. Any spiritual life that I have in me, any eternal life that comes to my body is Christ's life in me. And I'm participating in his life. Our lives then, Paul teaches as Christians, we're in this juxtaposition of already and not yet where we have been raised spiritually, but we can still walk in sin. And so Paul is urging in Colossians and in Galatians and in Romans, that our lives are supposed to look like we are united with a life like His. The reality of our life should come out in our living. Consider how Paul references our unity with Christ's resurrection as the basis for how we live our lives. Look in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. Colossians 3, 1 through 5. Just look there with me. Paul has been teaching in multiple places in Colossians 1 and 2 about the unity of the Christian, death with Christ, raised with Christ. And now in chapter 3, he's going to start teaching very pointedly about how to live as a Christian. Look what he says, Colossians 3, verse 1. 
If then you have been raised with Christ, if that's true, you yourself were raised from the dead with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on earth. For, look what he says. Paul is teaching the application of our union with Christ. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore. Verse 5. If you've been raised, if you have died, if your life is hidden with Christ, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And Paul goes on. The call to live a righteous life is not merely about, you know what, Jesus paid the price for you, you owe him. God paid the debt for you, you're in debt to him. It's actually not how it works. In one sense, we're indebted to God for every breath, for existence that we have. But in a salvation sense, we are united with Christ. Jesus has paid the debt for our sin. We were crucified, buried, raised with him. So the call in Colossians to live a life that is like Christ comes from the fact that we have died and been raised with him. You don't need these things. You don't need sexuality or passion or evil desire. You don't need other people's stuff in order to live, in order to feel alive, in order to be alive. Ultimately, this is what sin is. Believing there's more life in that tree over there than in the one God has given us. There's a better life in the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a better life in sin than there is in God and his commands. So if you've died with Christ and you've been raised with him, put off your old self. Put that off. Consider it dead and walk in Christ's life. Willingly, actively, enjoyably participate in Christ's righteousness in the way you live. Paul says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Crucified, buried with him, raised with him, live with him, seated with him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 6 includes this little phrase that I just think we often skip over, but is a high end and importance in the gospel. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's the wonderful gospel. By grace you have been saved. And then there's verse 6. 
and raised us up with him, as we just said, resurrected with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Seated us with him. As it were, our feet are on two grounds. Our rears are seated in two places. That Jesus is seated means that the purpose for which he came is done. The sin is atoned for once and all. Now he is seated at the right hand of God. Now, friends, we need not feel anxious about the permanence of our life in Christ. He has been seated. The priest has gone in to make atonement. And he need not come out for making atonement again next year and the year after, and the year after, with more lambs and more bulls and more pigeons and more rituals. No, the priest goes in and he takes a seat because it's done. And we have been seated with him where we reign and rule. Conclusion, our lives are hidden in Christ this phrase that Paul uses in Colossians 3. I want you to be encouraged about the security and the confidence that we have by our unity with Christ. Dear Christians, it is very easy to fall into temptation, to fall into sin, to fall in disbelief, about the security of those who are in Christ. This past week, I took my family to go tube down the Como River. And in doing so, I had grand visions, dreams, hopes, aspirations of a gentle, peaceful float down a very calm, peaceful river. It took about five minutes for all of those hopes and dreams to be dashed into very small pieces and float to the bottom of the river. All of us got our own tube. Some genius decided to take the family dog and let him have his own tube which I leashed to my tube. He jumped out of his tube about as soon as he got into it, began to swim around, which was fine because we had bought a little life jacket for our dog. I'm that person now. He began to swim. He's leashed to my tube, so he's pulling my tube around. I can't reach the kids. My sweet wife is trying her best to hold every family tube together to her tube. About five minutes in, this little, just a few hundred yards down, there's a chute, which we have been discussing for days as a family, where the water picks up a little bit of speed, and there's what some would call a rapid at the bottom. We got separated. I'm about 100 yards back with our dog, trying to figure things out. My wife and her kids go through the chute together. As I'm coming out the chute a few minutes later, I catch up just enough time to see my wife and family at the end of the, quote, rapids. My son has fallen out of his. He is flailing around in the water. All the peaceful visions went away. My wife looked like she was in a class five rapid on an inner tube. 
trying to keep the family together. She got spit out to the right. I got spit out to the left. They float down the river. One son doesn't have a tube. I've got a dog. I got to try to figure out how to get out of the tube, up on the concrete, and get back together with my family. We almost packed it up in about 10 minutes and went home. But I wonder, Christians, if you don't feel this way sometimes about being a Christian, that you are just trying to hold on to all the tubes. You're trying to keep it together. And it's rapids, and it's other people bumping into you. It's trees in the water. All kinds of things just feel like we're getting separated from God. Separate. I feel good about my union with Christ on Sunday because we sang some songs. I saw some Christians. We smiled. We talked about some spiritual things. Maybe prayed somebody with someone in the hallway. And then on Monday, I just feel far. Monday, I feel like all the tubes are getting away. The dog's in the water. It's just chaos. Friends, don't believe it. Don't believe it tomorrow morning. Don't believe it Wednesday afternoon when you, when you fall into temptation and the sin that you've been fighting. Don't believe it. Look at, listen to what Paul says in Colossians. If you're trusting Christ, the Spirit of God is unified with Christ, you have died. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with Christ means protected, sheltered in Christ, in God. Like Psalm 27 verse 5 says, he will hide me in his shelter. That kind of hiding. Like Isaiah 49 2 says, the shadow of his hand hid me. It doesn't mean that your life is hidden from you. It means that your life is hidden from harm. Hidden where? Hidden with Christ in God. Where Christ is, you are. As Christ lives, you live. As Christ has overcome sin, so you have died and now live. Where Christ is seated, you are seated. And not because you are so great, but because God is so kind. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Your life is safe in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for hopeful wonderful, power-filled words in your word. I pray that you would help us continue forward in faith. Help us believe. Help us feel. Not only understand, but walk in newness of life. Thank you, Father, that to be in Christ is not just believing something is true, but to actually be something new.
Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit which can unite us to Christ. Thank you for the grace that is in Christ to cleanse us from our sin, to give us life when we deserve death. I'll give you just a moment to pray, to reflect, consider in silence, and I'll come back and close us in a moment. Amen.